Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of these, your faithful, who have gathered here out of love for you. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, when I was working at, well, years ago, actually, when I was pastor of Friends Congregational Church, United Church of Christ in College Station, Texas, uh, I got asked, well, I tell, I tell these stories about being at Texas A&M all the time, because they're just good stories. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was... I was pastor of Friends Congregational Church. We were an open and affirming church, one of the first open and affirming congregations in the United Church of Christ in Texas. And uh, so I got a call. Uh, the, a new student organization had been formed and had been accepted for the first time. And uh, after a long, uh, difficult struggle with Texas A&M, the Gay Student Association. And they uh, were a small group of people, and they invited me to come speak to them. You know the topic, because it's always the topic when they ask a pastor to come and talk to the Gay Student Association. It's what, what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And, and I talk about that a lot, and I don't ever really get tired of talking about it, because it seems like people still need to hear what, what the Bible has to say. So um, I, of course, accepted, and and I went that evening, and it was just a small group, uh, not too many people, and um, I decided to start talking uh, using the words of James Weldon Johnson in his uh, beautifully, uh, beautifully rendered book called Seven Negro Sermons in Verse. That book was published in 1927. It was called God's Trombones. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And at the very beginning of the book, in the very first rendering of Genesis in verse, uh, James Weldon Johnson has God say, I'm lonely. I believe I will make me a world. As I looked out telling this story, a young man was sitting on the very front row and began weeping. And um, following the meeting, he came and spoke to me and apologized for his emotional response. And then he said, I guess I had just never thought that God would be lonely. When I heard those words, I realized just how much God understood my loneliness. I will never forget that. It was a powerful moment to realize that the God of all creation is seeking relationship with us, with you and me, with all of nature and all animals and creatures and with all things. I'm lonely. I think I'll make me a world. 
I've chosen to do a, a six-sermon series on a topic called cross-reference. And, um, and I've chosen it because I want us to begin to understand that the whole of our Holy Scriptures is all about this deep intimacy with us that God seeks. God who experiences our joys and sorrows God who feels our hopes and heartaches. God who understands our lives and our living and our deaths. And so the reason I call it's called cross because if we do not take into account the first testament of our scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, we miss so much of the connection between those ancient texts and stories and lessons that make reappearance in the New Testament scriptures that reveals to us the person in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So this is why I'm doing this sermon called Cross-Reference. So here's the problem. The problem is that so many Christians today want to set aside the First Testament as irrelevant and only look at the New Testament that they believe reveals uh, who Jesus Christ is, which it does, but reveals God in a different way. So many, many people will say, have said to me, uh, well, you know, the God of the First Testament, and they use the language Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, instead of thinking about it as the oldest of our scriptures, they think of it as like old. You're just, it's just old. It's tired out. It's worn out. Okay, So the, the God of the Old Testament is an angry, vengeful God. But the God of the New Testament is a glorious, grace-filled, mercy-giving, love, uh, a beautiful God who, who loves beyond all measures, a loving God revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, that breakdown between the First and the New Testament, or the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures, is false. Because if we take away the First Testament, we're taking away the majority of our Holy Scripture. And uh, we're left with a tiny little bit of the New Testament. And we miss everything and how it plays into all that is happening in Jesus' day, all that is happening in Paul's day, all that is happening in the first century church and beyond. This rejection of the First Testament has also uh, created a sense that some Christians view themselves as superior to our Jewish siblings. And, in fact, this separation has caused great uh, violence in the history of our faith against Jewish people. Now, so you might see why I'm using First Testament, because it sort of elevates this rather than it seeming old and tired. The First Testament. I'm going to try to do that on a pretty regular basis. Now, the whole of Scripture, when taken as a whole, 
And when we read it through the lens of the ancient people who actually experienced the prophets and all of that and told stories around fires about the creation of the universe and the creation of our world, um, these ancient people um, were... All of this was happening in different times and in different spaces and in different cultures. But what we discover is that God is a God who seeks to be with us consistently in all of the scriptures, who wants relationship with us, and in fact who creates covenant with humanity over and over and over and over again. And a covenant that is completely imbalanced. The, you know, the covenant that uh, we make or the contracts we make in business and everything is, is designed to put people equal with each other. But, but God's covenant, uh, God gives us what we can never give back, what we can never do. Uh, and God extends that to us. And over and over and over again, And every time the people fail, every time they turn away and seek other gods, every time they don't listen to the prophets, God still keeps coming back. It's like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps going and going and going and going. So what I want to say, it's reasonable to understand that the first century church or the first followers of Jesus called the way, because most of them in the beginning were Jewish, they looked at the Hebrew scriptures, which were their Bible, and in it, as they read it, they saw Jesus, the rabbi of Nazareth, the one that eventually emerges as the transcendent Christ for the Christian church. Now, you know, take, for example, the Gospel of Matthew. It is filled with references back to the First Testament. I mean, so it's natural for this to happen. It's natural for us to do that. But when we do that, we tend to rob our Jewish siblings of their understanding of these scriptures. So go and (coughs) attend a Sabbath service and listen to a rabbi preach, and you will have these ancient scriptures opened up for you in a very deep and promising way. It's wrong if we don't think about what these scriptures, how they stand on their own, these First Testament scriptures. To stand on their own, to live on their own, to share uh, vision and prophecy and everything on their own. So maybe instead of saying, and and still we can draw these connections, but maybe instead of saying that this text of Jeremiah points directly to the covenant that Jesus makes at the Last Supper, um, maybe we understand it in a different way. Maybe we don't draw so tight a connection. Maybe we see it as that this passage of Jeremiah when God says I'm going to make a new covenant with you and when Jesus makes a new covenant at that last supper maybe we see it more as that Jesus is stepping into the lineage of prophets 
Maybe we see it more as Jesus offering what he knows to be true in his own Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, about God making covenant. And Jesus uses that understanding of covenant making to make the covenant that he makes with us at the Last Supper. So let's talk a little bit about Jeremiah so that you remember, because I know you've already. Well, uh, anyway, uh, first of all, it's a difficult, it's a long book, it's one of the major prophets, and it's, it's, it's a little bit convoluted and it's difficult to read cover to cover, but there's still some of the most powerful passages of scripture are found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So it's a prophetic book in that Jeremiah emerges as one who speaks to God on behalf of the people and one who speaks to the people on behalf of God whether they like it or not. The prophet spoke to the soul of the people, challenged the conscience of the people, and offered promises and hope to their wounded and broken spirits. And let me tell you, they had wounded and broken spirits. The main subject of the book is survival. You see, Babylon has showed up on the scene and has launched three invasions against Judah and their principal city, Jerusalem. Now, that, I mean, that's a 9-11 thing happening. You know, it, it's the most sacred space is being attacked, okay? And people are being hauled away to Babylon. Now, this is like our kinds of turmoil now. I mean, human and theological disruption caused by political and military events. Sound familiar? The entire culture of Judah, of Israel, is in upheaval. Their theological grounding is also being shaken. So listen to these questions that they begin to ask. Does our defeat mean that God... How could God allow this to happen? Has God turned away from the covenant made at Sinai? You know that covenant, the Ten Commandments carved on stone with the other laws. And do we have a future? I bet none of us have been asking these kinds of questions lately. I mean, really. Do, I mean, has God forgotten me? Do I have a future? I mean, I read this week about climate destruction in the Arctic Circle and how it has, all the non-biodegradable chemicals have found their way there, and now they are being immersed, they are, because of the, um, well, you know what's happening. Anyway, <laughs> the, these, these chemicals are leaching out into the ocean. I, I mean, it, it just made my stomach crawl. And then, uh, you know, there's this, <laughs> there's this Delta virus. I mean, Stephanie, my wife, had a breakthrough infection. It's very, very frightening. And now we're being told that if we don't take care of this, pretty soon none of our vaccinations are going to work. Well, that's, that's cage rattling, right? And that is theological rattling as well, because then we begin to say, God, where are you? And this is what was happening in the book of the prophet Jeremiah. But it is into this turmoil that Jeremiah speaks. Jeremiah, the central character, his life is bound up in the story of the people. And what he then steps into is to say to the people that even in this midst of our demise, 
we will be restored. He remains unmarried. He has no children. He is arrested. He is imprisoned. He's left in a cistern to die and only narrowly escapes, and he loses everything and yet survives. Now, we don't know if Jeremiah actually was a single prophet who did all of this. Some scholars believe that there's three, maybe four strains because of the literary things that are used. But the main point is this character, Jeremiah, is bent on defending God on the charge of injustice and impotence in the fall of Judah. So the defense is not laid on God, but on, rather, the sin of the people who refuse to listen to the prophets. And by the way, I just want to say this because it's really important, Jeremiah's words are intensely political. Jeremiah is challenging the powers and principalities of his day, the kings and the armies and all of that. And so, you know, when people say to me, I don't like to come to church because, you know, it should, church shouldn't be political. Well, the prophets were political. Jesus was political. Okay. At the end of the book, though, Jeremiah promises a new covenant. And that's what we hear in chapter 31. Points to God's fidelity. That God will bring them into a future full of promise which is part of what we hear in the first lesson. Now, this may be one of the best-known passages of Jeremiah that Christians know about, but it's also often misinterpreted. The new covenant that we hear is what we hear in the second lesson we heard today. That's what we hear as the new covenant. But when Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant, he is speaking about a renewed relationship between God and and the people of Israel and Judah. Now, at the end of this passage today, we hear that that covenant is for everyone. It's an equalizer. And so it goes beyond just Israel and Judah and moves out into the world. And this passage speaks of a new covenant that is different from the one from Sinai. This new covenant will be because God will write the law not on stone tablets, but on their hearts. This is so huge. God, not the people, will create love and fidelity so that everyone, the least to the greatest, will be known to God. This is about relationship with God. It is about an egalitarian society where everyone equally will know God. And Israel's sins are, are like ours. They miss the mark even though they don't want to. They, they don't listen when they should. And yet God meets them with a promise of a new covenant. So how does this mesh with the first uh, Corinthians passage we heard? Well, let me just tell you about Corinth. It was a diverse church, very diverse, much like the culture of the day, had very, very few wealthy people, no middle class, and mainly poor people, Okay. And most were Gentiles who had converted to Christianity. And we hear the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, and that's when we think about Jesus making the new covenant at the last one. The ending covenant, the last one. Well, you know, 
I'm part of a denomination that believes God is still speaking, and I think God's still making covenants with us today. So perhaps it'd just be better to think of Jesus being in this lineage of prophets, and that this covenant is transformative because he is the representative of how God is manifest, God's love is manifest in human form. You may not know, but this statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians is the oldest record we have of this meal that we share weekly. Still, it is believed that Paul is actually quoting from an existing liturgy when he writes this letter. And he passes on a tradition given by God. And notice that Jesus is not substituting himself in place of us for our sins. In other words, this is not about substitutionary atonement. No. Listen to what Jesus said. This is my body that is for you. He doesn't say, this is my body that is instead of you. He says, this is my body that is for you. And this new covenant that Jesus enacts at the Last Supper begins with me, my body, my blood, but concludes through this active memory with we. All of you, all of you do this in remembrance of me. But it's not about my blood, my body anymore. Jesus sends it out into the world, right? So then we get this beautiful hymn that we sang this morning that I just love because the theology is so good. For the promise you do love us. May the church that's, the church triumphant that's waiting for us keep love's tie unbroken. In our hearts, keep watch and word. In our hearts, write it on our hearts. In the world where you have sent us, let your kingdom come, O Lord. It's powerful. I just get chill bumps saying it. And I, now I know I'm a church geek. I know I'm a Bible geek. But I just get chill bumps when I read those words. This is God's continuing promise and covenant for us even today. The prophet Jeremiah and the rabbi Jesus understood the deep suffering of the people and the deep beauty of creation and that those come together in our relationship with God. So the truth is, my friends, life is really hard. And for every generation, it has been hard. And we will have pain. And yet, we will also have beauty. And Father Richard Rohr says that these two things are the two faces of God. Because God understands this pain and also understands the beauty. And, and when we experience pain, we, we are vulnerable. And that allows us to encounter God. In fact, the saints were known to seek out suffering because it brought them closer to God and helped them to see beauty in the world. We feel these both together. The Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, in her sermon, Good Grief, at Middle Collegiate Church in New York City in July of 2017, wrote these words about pain and about beauty. She said, grief puts us in touch with our vulnerabilities. 
I think the feeling of grief lets us know the power of wounds to shape our stories. I think it lets us know how capable we are of having our hearts broken and our feelings hurt. I think it lets us know the link that we each have because we're human. Because we're human, we hurt. Because we're human, we have tears to cry. Because we're human, our hearts are broken. Because we're human, we understand that loss is universal, is the universal language. Every person grieves. And that in that grief, we are opened to vulnerability and beauty. God says, I'm lonely. I think I'll make me a world. Uh, In my last year at the Cathedral of Hope, um, it was a challenging year for me. And and that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) And in that last year, uh, on Easter Sunday, I, I preached a sermon, and I used as the primary running illustration through the whole sermon uh, excerpts from the best exotic marigold hotel. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that movie. But throughout the movie, you hear the central character who is, who is promoting this best exotic marigold hotel and in which all the people who are there are just a hot mess and falling apart. You hear him say, Everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. This is the promise. This is the covenant. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.